On this week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about the most controversial bills still in play in the Texas legislature, Beto O'Rourke's attempted presidential reboot, and the Texas House's resident bomb thrower, Jonathan Stickman. But before we do, I want to thank our Tribcast sponsors. Lone Star College. Learn why over 99,000 students choose Lone Star College for affordable access to high-quality higher education. Nationally recognized, globally connected, locally focused. More at lonestar.edu. And keep Texans beautiful. Say no to reducing cosmetology education in HB 2843. As amended, HB 2843 would reduce the number of required hours for a cosmetology license. More at keeptexansbeautiful.com slash HB hyphen 2843. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, May 22nd with our Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Rose Ramsey. (laughs) As nice. he was called in his <laughs> elementary school bowling league. Howdy. Right. <laughs> yep. Uh, reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. And reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. Hello. As always, we'll take questions from our listeners in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. Uh, and speaking of our listeners, we would love to know how you discovered the Tribcast, what you'd like to hear more of, and what you wouldn't. Go to texastribune.org slash Tribcast survey, that's all one word, to complete a very short survey about our podcast. Uh, we really value your opinion, well, most of your opinions, and we hope to hear from you. I'll read the comments on those. That ought to be fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, so I want to start with uh, all of you with last night in the Texas Ledge, in the House in particular, which seemed to be going pretty smoothly uh, until we got to this... Was uh, a day like any other day? <laughs> <laughs> until we got to the resident mental health bill, the big omnibus mental health bill, Senate Bill 10, that the House had the responsibility of pushing through. Uh, what happened? Yeah, so this was a, a, a priority of state leaders, including Governor Abbott. It was one of the bills that, uh, one of the proposals that uh, state leaders pushed after the Santa Fe High School shooting last year. Uh, it would set up, as, as you mentioned, a Texas mental health consortium, um, which would you know bring together uh, psychiatric professionals across the state from the state's medical schools to basically kind of create a more robust uh, system of uh, diagnosing uh, people who may be a danger to society uh, earlier and, and basically just more uh, actively and pro- proactively, I should say. Um, and so big priority bill. Um, there was a point of order called on it uh, by Jonathan Sticklin, uh, resident rabble rouser, as you noted in your intro. Um, and uh, basically it brought the, the House um, to a halt for uh, a couple hours to the point that uh, I believe they recessed for almost an hour and a half, nearly an hour and a half, um, so that they could go th- so that parliamentarians could kind of analyze this point of order. Uh, they came back, and, and Dennis Bond and the House Speaker very uh, somberly took the mic and <laughs> read, a, read a ruling in favor of Stickland that the point of order was sustained. And for the time being, it looked like this you know, massive priority bill, um, you know, relatively non-controversial too, I should say. I mean, uh, I believe it had unanimous support uh, in the Senate, uh, bipartisan support, obviously. Um, you know, so really non-controversial, massive priority bill uh, died. Uh, it looked like it was dead for the time being. Um, and it came back later uh, in the in the night, and maybe Ross or someone else wants to take it away on how that happened. Yeah, next. well, so before you take it away yeah. to the, uh, what for proponents of the bill was it definitely a happy ending. Um, I mean, 
So this is, a, in theory, a non-controversial bill. So what is Jonathan Stickland's play here? Like, I want to talk about what he gets out of all this, because there's a laundry list of bills this session he has tried to kill on technicalities that you would think uh, would have overwhelming support, even among his uh, constituents. You know, if you go look at the, you know, the witness list on this bill and the people who were for it and the people against it, you know, it's clout city. It's like, you know, it's like Patrick was saying, the governor's for it, the, the leadership's all for it, the sponsor in the Senate is Jane Nelson, the head of the Finance Committee. The sponsor in the House is John Zerwas, the head of the Appropriations Committee. So it's cloud all the way across. The co-authors, I think, were maybe the whole Senate, but it was bipartisan. Um, this thing, the, the wheels were greased. But if you look at the opposition to this bill in the Senate Committee and all the way up, it included a bunch of people who are basically you know, on the same tuning fork as, as Jonathan Stickland, the Northeast Tarrant. Um, Tea Party was in there, the Texas Eagle Forum was in there, uh, several groups that have advocated for, um, against psychiatry, particularly regarding children and regard this as a state intervention between parents and children. You know, a bunch of people who are um, worked up about it, and when you look at the list of witnesses who were against the bill and you look at Jonathan Stickland's politics, you know, he's with his constituents. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, talk a little bit about how he has evolved as a legislator. I mean, there have been, over the years, there's always one person, it feels like, in the House who's just damn good at the points of order, you know. You, historically, Trey Martinez-Fisher was the one who, like, you knew if he came to the back mic, basically that that bill was going down, at least for the time being. Is, is Jonathan Stickland that savvy of a lawmaker? Where is this coming from? Well, you know, I don't know who's doing the research. There's always, you know, behind the rules, people is, are always, you know, quiet people. One of the great moves that Dennis Bonin, one of the great inside moves that Dennis Bonin made at the very beginning of this session when he became speaker was he grabbed two of the best outside rules experts and made them parliamentarians, Sharon Carter and Hugh Brady. Hugh Brady, in particular, had been the um, researcher slash expert behind the Democrats' points of order for years. So one of the things, you know, Bonin did by putting him on his staff was took the gun out of everybody else's holster. Yeah, right. right. So, but somebody's obviously doing this behind Stickland, but I also want to say, you know, watching Stickland last night, he was pretty fast on the draw with, you know, they would do something and he had another move and they would he do was something ready. and he had another yeah. move. So part of this is just his own intelligence about the rules. He's, he's warmed into this. Same thing happened to Trey Martinez-Fisher. Mm -hmm. And you're right, there's always in the House somebody who is a bomber from the back. And it's not really ideological. It's just another way to play the game and to increase your power. If you're not a chairman or even if you are, if you're not a real player. Or, or if even you have if you trouble are, getting any of your own bills even passed. You can insert yourself into the process by just reading the rules better than everybody else has, and, and you get a jump on the House. And, and even if you don't, like, ultimately, another point of order of his was not sustained. Ultimately, we saw the bulk of this mental health bill resurrected, attached to a different bill that passed the House. You can eat up so much time, and that's so important on a night like last night where the House was facing a midnight deadline to pass Senate bills out of the chamber. Killing even two hours on a day like yesterday right. can kill, you know, dozens of bills that are further down the calendar. Yeah, expensive hour and a half. Right. It was, it was a triumphant night for leadership, no doubt. But to play <laughs> the, the other side of this, though, I thought it was notable that uh, 
this bill was not being brought up on the House floor until the final hours <laughs> before the deadline, basically. Right. I mean, they were kind of, I think, playing with fire by leaving this um, until the final day, yeah. given how big of a priority it was. Right. Mm -hmm. For sure. Right. Uh, so what are the political ramifications for somebody like Jonathan Stickland in a case like this? You know, I mean, Ross, you were saying earlier that the, the opposition researcher, the, you know, opposition mailers, like, basically write themselves, not just with this bill, but some of the other bills, one involving puppies. Yeah, somebody's going to have a bumper <laughs> sticker that says Jonathan Stickland hates dogs. Somebody's going to have one Talk, that says... What's that bill, by the way? Well, I, yeah. I don't know all the details of it. It was the leash law, and it was basically about leaving dogs... Unattended, un unattended, and tied uh, up, leashed, right. and in the sun. In, right. in, I think it was non-shaded areas. Right. Um, Recall, we live in Texas. Saying, yeah. Basically, <laughs> you can't do that, and you know, Stickland um, basically set it up so yeah, you can still do that to oh. a dog. So there's the Jonathan hates dogs meme. There's the uh, <laughs> Jonathan uh, hates mentally that ill kids. Are yeah. sorcery, which was, right. came from a quote that he had about you know uh, vaccines and 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 that stuff. And then there was the the thing last night, you know, he hates mental health. You know, I mean, there's a bunch of ways to attack him here. But again, if he's listening to his constituents and he's reading it right, he could be okay. He, I should say he's the guy who got into the House on the skinniest margin last time. He was under 50%. There was a libertarian in the race who got 2.75%. I looked this up yesterday. I don't have it at hand. But uh, the libertarian got 2.75%. And that's the only reason Stickland probably was under 50%, but it was a tough race, and he's going to go back into that atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Well, as Stephanie asks on social media, why can one person kill a bill like that? It's completely undemocratic that a single person has that kind of power. <laughs> the rules are the rules. <laughs> well, the governor also has that power, well, by the way. Well, yes, complaints are... from the Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> but sure that's a question. Yeah. <laughs> the rules are the rules. And, and if you catch your opponent essentially cheating or bending the rules and you call them on it, then they have to snap into place. And if they have made the mistake, kind of to Patrick's point, of putting something up on the very last night, if there's a mistake, that's going to be a very costly mistake because it means there's no time to bring it back up. Mm -hmm. This happened in March. It would be no big deal. You'd go back to committee, clean everything up, bring it back to the floor, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the rules have to be in place. And if, and if the rules weren't this powerful there would be no point to them. Mm -hmm. Well, were the, let's go full circle. So we know that this bill ended up getting revived by getting tacked on as an amendment to a school safety bill. Were the rules bent, you know, at the 11th hour last night to get this bill back out there? I don't think so. I think he got outplayed. I think, you know, we got to Stickland a point. got outplayed. Yeah, he called a good point of order and it was a good enough point of order and they are sticking to the rules enough uh, Dennis Bonin and, and his team are sticking enough to the rules that even on a bill that they really, really wanted, he called a proper foul, and they said, yeah, that's a proper foul. Mm -hmm. But then they went, in to, went to work, and I suspect this is what part of their hour and a half was right. If this dies, what do we do? And they started building a way out, mm -hmm. and they had a couple of things in place. Um, if you were watching really closely, the last thing that happened sort of to trigger Stickland's defeat and the replacement of this bill was calling the question. They went around the floor. They gathered 25 signatures. Um, when he got the signal, Terry Canales handed the piece of paper to Bonin, and Bonin called the previous question, which basically shut off the debate Stickland was trying to have. 
and also foreclosed his options and ended up passing this bill. So, so you he, think some he of that got outplayed. You think some of that gamesmanship was actually those 90 minutes that we were waiting to see if that point of order was going to be sustained or not. They were plotting their. They oh. knew they had a good point of order and they were plotting their next move. I suspect and, table and in the time afterward. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. 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 I mean, Bono was you know not at the dice. You know, I suspect the time. folks yeah. over at that table were working on the rule and the folks over at that table were working on the surgery. Right. One of the things that I loved about the surgery was that the person who came to the mic to basically say this is what we're going to do was uh, Greg Bonin, Dennis Bonin's brother. So you had right. Dennis Bonin up at the dais and you had his brother. It seemed like the brothers basically teaming up to, you know, get back at Stickland. Somebody yeah. pointed out, you know, Evan did the thing this morning with three legislators and somebody pointed out that Bonin has been so strict on the rules that one of the people whose bill got killed on a point of order this session was Greg Bonin. Mm, his brother, him. Yeah. I was going to note, this all eventually led to this really heated moment uh, with Bonin and Sticklin and Zerwas and kind of this whole, uh, you know, mob at the front of the scrum at the front of the chamber where uh, it was right within earshot and, uh, you know, distance of the, the press uh, area. And so mm -hmm. that, Delicious. of course, made for a very entertaining scene. And I didn't hear everything uh, that was going on, but you could tell from the facial expressions, from the hand gestures that, uh, you know, Bonin was not happy, Sticklin was not happy. You know, it was a classic kind of just like late deadline night kind of blow up. And um, there's some great pictures out there of the facial expressions. I'm sure people can look them up. Indeed. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Emma, this wasn't supposed to be a social issue session necessarily, but in the final weeks here, we've been batting around a few different uh, bills that have, have the sort of the right on the attack and the left on edge. One of those, of course, is what's being called the Chick-fil-A bill, a religious liberty bill or right of refusal bill, depending on who's talking. Um, what's the deal? What's the current status of this legislation and how likely is it? Yeah, so talk about bills uh, dying on points of order in the Texas House and then somehow coming back to life. They always do. This <laughs> is a <laughs> this is a bill that started in early March as kind of a sweeping religious refusals bill, basically language saying if you act in a professional and a personal capacity on your sincerely held religious beliefs, the government cannot take adverse action against you. So that's that's pretty scary language for LGBTQ folks. Um, this bill was significantly watered down. Basically, the form it ended up in is just codifying a lot of protections that we already think of ourselves as having in the First Amendment, you know, um, freedom of association, freedom of religion. The bill now says something like the government can't take adverse against adverse action against you for your donations to or membership in a religious organization, which most lawyers would tell you is already true. Right. Um, but for LGBTQ advocates, you know, for the first ever LGBTQ caucus in the Texas House, this was a really scary bill because of where it came from. So a couple weeks ago in the Texas House, the bill comes up and Julie Johnson, who's a freshman lawmaker, a member of the LGBTQ caucus from Dallas, rises immediately with a point of order and eventually sinks the bill. Uh, days later, it's revived in the Senate, kind of rammed through the Senate in just a few days, basically as fast as it can move to get it back to the House where it passed earlier this week. All right. Uh, so likelihood that it's going to end up uh, on the governor's desk with a signature? All but certain. Um, his, his tweet. He tweeted, yeah, a picture <laughs> of himself like reading an article about the bill while eating Chick-fil-A <laughs> for dinner, I believe. Um, worth explaining maybe why some proponents are calling this the Save Chick-fil-A bill. So in late March, after the bill was filed, there was an incident where the San Antonio City Council said, we're not going to allow Chick-fil-A to open a franchise location in our airport. And one council member said, you know, I can't support uh, a company that has a history of anti-gay behavior. 
So that's kind of launched an uproar across the state. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxson, who's kind of a crusader for religious liberty issues, launched an investigation into the city. And now um, proponents of this bill were kind of able to rebrand it, this watered-down version, as, hey, look what happened to Chick-fil-A in San Antonio. We right. can't let this happen again. Well, it's also sparked yeah. a, f a furious debate in our newsroom about whether Chick-fil-A is actually good. <laughs> I like Chick-fil-A. <laughs> it is. You know, part of the problem in the, in the airport thing was Chick-fil-A doesn't open on Sunday because, you know, that's because of the owner's religious beliefs and whatever. But for San Antonio at the airport, that's a day you don't get a scrape. You don't get right. part of the concession because they're not open on Sunday. So they were looking for somebody that was open all the time. Yep. Uh, all right, Emma, one more for you. Uh, obviously, in recent weeks, anti-abortion legislation in a lot of other states has gotten a ton of attention. What's Texas's version of all of this, and what's the prognosis for it? The headline on this, to me, is that Texas, you know, historically thought to be kind of this deep red state, often the state pushing the envelope on these abortion issues, is not going as far as other states are this year. You know, we're seeing heartbeat bills, so-called, um, in states like Georgia, Alabama, Missouri, just passed, I believe, an eight-week ban on abortion before the vast oh, majority of women right know there. they're mm -hmm. pregnant. Um, and Texas is, you know, some pro-lifers might kind of quibble with this characterization, but they're not going as far. There was a heated debate in the House on Friday night, went pretty late, on this bill that um, supporters say would, quote, defund Planned Parenthood, the idea is to kind of bar local governments from partnering in any way with any groups that ever provide abortions. So kind of the best example of that, that Republican lawmakers are sort of taking aim at is this, what they call a sweetheart deal in East Austin, where the city leases a Planned Parenthood location for, I believe, $1 a year. So barring those kinds of transactions. But when you put that up against a bill that would ban any abortion after six weeks, which is right. before most women know they're pregnant, it's a pretty stark comparison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the broader pictures here, whether it's that or the Chick-fil-A bill, I think there's been really interesting kind of developments, uh, big picture over the past couple of weeks of just kind of the legislative tackling and block, blocking of some of these more incendiary controversial bills. Obviously, some of them, like the Chick-fil-A bill, have gotten through. Um, but you also saw uh, two, at least two, controversial bills die in the House Calendars Committee over the weekend, an elections bill, um, and also a bill to make it harder to, basically, to protect Confederate monuments, uh, bills that would have led to a really long and divisive debate in the House. Um, and so I think it's been interesting to see kind of <laughs> what's gotten through, what's been cut off, where the deal-making, the backroom deal-making has been. Um, and I think that, you know, state leadership is still, it seems, is still predetermined to keep some of these really politically explosive distractions um, to a minimum. Um, we're still having them, obviously. The Chick-fil-A bill is certainly controversial, as you pointed out. Um, but we're not going like full bore at the end here, I think, in terms of these these really uh, politically sensitive issues. Yeah, they've kept the lid on a lot of stuff, you know, in, you know, partly in an effort to, you know, look serious and partly to keep attention on the things that they really wanted to do. Um, it's been kind of an interesting session mm -hmm. that way. All right, well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. Texas Children's Hospital, join patient families and Texas Children's expert physicians on a journey to save lives. New episodes every Tuesday. Learn more at texaschildrens.org slash podcasts. And the Texas Smart on Crime Coalition, working to make our criminal justice system safer, smarter, and more cost-effective. Join us at facebook.com slash TXSmartOnCrime. Uh, all right, Patrick, uh, Beto O'Rourke is looking at like 2% or something in the polls. Uh, what is with his attempted reboot, and will it be successful? 
Yeah, so he's been in this for a little over two months now and uh, certainly <laughs> no longer enjoying like the rock star Vanity um, Fair. You know, celebrity status <laughs> that he had uh, in the lead up to his launch and then days afterward, as you pointed out, no longer uh, as high in the polls as he once was, either national polls or early state polls, not getting as much uh, as wide media attention. And so what we've seen over the past several days is, I think, an attempt by him to uh, engage the national media more. He's been doing more national TV appearances. He was on The View last week, as well as I think he was on uh, MSNBC three or four times last week, which wow. was the most he's ever been on in his entire presidential campaign in a week. Um, so a, a significant CNN town hall and last exactly, night. Exactly, yeah, and culminating, I think you could say, in this CNN town hall uh, last night, Tuesday night. Just a one-on-one? Um, -on -one? Was it a one-on-one? Yeah, yeah, it was a one-on-one. -on -one. It was uh, taped in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, he didn't make a lot of huge news at the town hall. It was more newsworthy for being kind of, I think, the capstone on this kind of national media uh, ramp up. I think he was generally well received. Again, I mean, throughout this, you know, uh, reemergence on national TV, um, you know, the message hasn't really changed. It's really just the way that he's going about trying to broadcast it to a national audience versus uh, the kind of very intense in-person campaigning that he had been doing for the first eight weeks of his of his run. And so, again, not much as I think not much has really changed in the message or what he's saying or even the questions he's getting. Um, but it's just trying to take it to a wider audience. Um, and his, you know, a lot of his rivals have figured this out. Um, much earlier than he is that this primary, uh, you know, for all the traditional focus on going to Iowa, um, South Carolina and New Hampshire, um, there is, you know, our politics are increasingly nationalized. And if you're not going on MSNBC and talking to that national audience, if you're not, mm -hmm. you know, doing the scene, the, you know, a traditional, you know, now obligatory CNN town hall, uh, you're missing out on reaching a lot of different people. And so he's kind of behind the curve in that regard. Mm -hmm. How uh, does that compare? So, how, first of all, how does that compare right now to Julian Castro's uh, polling numbers and his sort of national? Um, well, <laughs> uh, I would say attention, but I'd like to say I don't, lack I don't of, mean to be uh, yeah. or cynical, <laughs> but I mean Castro has held steady. That's what people yeah, always right. say right before they get cynical. That's <laughs> right. a, yeah, I mean Castro. You know, while O'Rourke has kind of been on uh, this this you know very fast uh, you know increase in the polls and then coming down, uh, you know, Castro has been at one or two percent in mm -hmm. all these polls throughout. And so uh, say what you want about yeah, that, I mean, but there's some, lower, some consistency but, yeah. there. Um, and so O'Rourke is coming, you know, and meeting, kind of meeting Castro at the bottom right. <laughs> in terms of the, the line chart here. Um, and you mentioned Castro's that still showing the, up on MSNBC. I mean, sure, I you know, Castro, him. I mean, you've got, you've got 23 candidates and half of them are at one percent or less. Right. And so, right. I mean, like, you know, if you're at one or two percent, like you may be, you're, you're like in the top half of this field <laughs> yeah. uh, in terms of, you know, the raw polling. Um, and so I wouldn't count him out, uh, but he's definitely taken in terms of when we talk about, you know, cable news appearances, Castro's taken definitely, I think, a more uh, traditional approach to that or, or more uh, regular approach to that uh, in terms of being on MSNBC, being on CNN. Right. He already he had a CNN town hall, I think, a month, month and a half ago or something like that. And so um, I think, you know, uh, within the Castro campaign, there was a, you know, a much earlier acceptance of the need to do that kind of media. Um, but also Castro needed that attention mm -hmm. much earlier on, given his standing. Right, yeah. right. I mean, you're going to get into the same thing with the Democrats this time you got into with the Republicans in 2016, which is you're trying to get into the center of the stage. You know, there's, there are you know, 23 candidates. I can't remember the Republicans said 14 or 15. And you're trying to be in one of those middle, you know, three or five, pick a number, one of those middle slots if you're on stage at all. And, and the, you know, the two things going on now are the, kind of the primary to get into that position 
A, and the primary to uh, raise money, B, which is, you know, the financial primary is already going on, and we'll, I guess we find out in uh, mid-July or, or, you know, right at, the end, right at the end of June, you know, how everybody's doing on the money race. If you can get into the top five or six money raisers and, you know, do at least register in the polls, then you'll get in the middle of stage and then you'll be part of the, part of the fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to note, too, another kind of part of this phase of our works campaign is finally, some people would argue with finally, but, you know, mm -hmm. beginning to professionalize his campaign mm -hmm. in terms of bringing in uh, political professionals uh, to occupy, you know, traditional roles like national political director, national organizing director, building out his staff in the early voting states in Iowa and South Carolina, at least, um, because, you know, he launched his campaign in, in mid-March with really kind of... Um, the kind of small circle that he had had for a while. Um, his campaign manager, uh, you know, they announced her hire in, in late March, but she only recently started working full time out of the El Paso headquarters. And so behind the scenes, I think you're starting to see a more professional and traditional campaign infrastructure come together. Sort at this of point. less a less disruptive campaign than we were probably promised. In some ways, and that's, you know, as we said from the beginning, that's kind of the central tension in his presidential campaign is how do you stay true to the spirit of those previous campaigns while also adjusting for the rigors and the demands of a, a national mm -hmm. race? Yeah, and I think the answer is you just live stream your haircut, right? right? Which is what we saw. <laughs> yeah, or your dentist, your trip right. to the dentist. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, it does seem I like... I that was a reminder that, you know, for all this talk of a reboot, like some things <laughs> never change. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. I, d I do think, you know, if... It seems like any presidential candidate who makes it to the top few at some point hits rock bottom and sort of like, you know, works their way back up. I mean, it seems like it's, this is a good time to be at rock bottom if you're going to be at rock bottom. Yeah, this has a normal arc. I mean, there's a there's an old phrase in politics that the pioneer is the one with the arrow in his back. Right. And, and it's the, the person in front is the one everybody else shoots at. And it's, you know, if, if I'm one of the other 22 candidates, I'm going to try to shoot at Biden or I'm going to try to shoot at, you know, whoever I can get in front of me. The question for O'Rourke, really now is the same as it was when he was making the decision to run a national race. Can you scale this up? Can you do, can you have the kind of success nationally in a national race that you had in a Texas race? And he came in with everybody's, you know, super high expectations and didn't live up to them. Um, but he's not dead. He's still in the thing and yeah. he's still in the top six or seven. And I suspect, you know, unless the money is a real surprise that he'll be probably in the top six or seven on money. Everyone loves a comeback story. Um, I think the, the narrative, you know, giveth as much as it taketh away. Yeah. And even last night, some of the initial impressions to the, you know, like the town, his town hall performance from like national, some national reporters and national pundits was like, he's back, you yeah. know? Like, yeah. So There's I think, also, you know, you'll, you'll see these, you know, highs and lows. And some of them watching, are a little yeah, artificially right. inflated. You can, you can see a lot of rooting interest in both the negative stories and the positive ones on, you know, on right. him and on the other candidates too. I mean, you know, finally, this guy's getting his comeuppance. Finally, this guy's coming back. You know, it's like, give it a break. Yep. All right. Well, uh, Ross, all of us are getting ready for a break, we hope, a legislative break. Uh, tell us what we're in for over the next few days uh, when it comes to the big priorities for the big three, you know, the budget, school finance, property taxes. Where are we on these things? They really only have to pass three bills to get out of here with either a success or a failure. I mean, the, these are, it's going to be described by... You know, the budget has always got to pass. They did a weird thing in the conference committee where the House and the Senate conferees came together, agreed on a budget, and said, oh, yeah, and we've left a $9 billion hole over there to plug in whatever education stuff y'all do. <laughs> and this is our last meeting. So, poof, the budget's kind of done, but they're waiting. House Bill 2 is the property tax bill. It has more to do with limits than it has to do with relief. This right. is the bill that requires 
uh, public approval of or voter approval of tax property tax revenue increases of over three and a half percent. That seems to be pretty much on track, and everything's sort of rotating around this hugely expensive, hugely complicated education bill, House Bill Three, which includes from the Senate side five thousand dollar a year pay raises for teachers and librarians in public schools. Uh, on the House side, more of the money is put into formulas so that the local school districts would determine it. 25% of that money has to be used for teacher pay raises. It's around $1,800. So there's a difference on teacher pay. There's a difference on how much money the state is putting straight into the school formulas, which changes the ratio of state to local share of education spending. Right now, Glenn Hager, the controller, puts it at about 64% local spending, 36% state spending, the House bill would level that up a little bit, and the House bill would do more to cut into recapture in places like Austin and Dallas and Plano and Fort Bend and all the places that end up putting part of their local tax money back into the state pot for, for poorer school districts. So they're trying to reconcile all of that. They're trying to preserve some property tax cuts that are sort of built in, but they're pretty small. It's four mm -hmm. cents in the House bill. It was seven or eight cents in the Senate bill. And it's all happening in a, you know, in a black box. So we're waiting to see what they come up with. They've got four or five days to do it, which is plenty of time. And I think what this is going to tell us is whether, you know, you always get at the end of a legislative session, here's the House version, here's the Senate version. Is your governor, whoever it is at the time, a closer? And, you know, now we're going to see if Greg Abbott can close a deal. Uh, so at this point, likelihood of a special session you think is next to none? I think it's pretty small. But it's going to hinge on that question: Can they seal this thing up? Yeah, I, th I think in terms, of, yeah, in terms of determining whether leadership's, you know, looking at exploring a special session or whatnot. I mean, there's been, as we pointed out, some of these bills that have been a bit of a distraction at the end. But it's still to them, I think, about property about right. basically SB two and HB three. They staked and the whole session on this. Yeah, right? so yeah, there's definitely pressure. Uh, but as Ross pointed out, those are on a you know relatively promising trajectory at mm -hmm. this point with the several days left in the session, and so. And uh, last question on this: Has the governor? Are there any indications that anything is has passed that he might veto? I mean, obviously we always see vetoes, but anything that he has tipped his hat on at all, shown his cards on. We know he likes chicken sandwiches. Right. He's not <laughs> like showing his yeah, cards. Yeah, exactly. yeah, right. Doesn't yeah, like yeah. showing his cards. No, and like he hasn't held a lot of, I mean, you know, this is kind of the point of the session where everyone's, all the state leaders are kind of, you know, working behind the scenes, all these backroom discussions. So we haven't seen Abbott out in public a lot recently to, you know, question him or anything like that. So, um, but we haven't gotten any signals that there's something that he's, you know, fixing to veto. All right, great. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, folks, don't forget to fill out our TribCast survey, texastribune.org slash survey. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to Lone Star College, Keep Texans Beautiful, Texas Children's Hospital, and the Texas Smart on Crime Coalition, our sponsors this week. An extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Emma, Patrick, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening.